you're able now, I encourage you to remain standing and turn to our New Testament reading, which includes our sermon text. Our second scripture reading and our New Testament reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, that is on page 1120, 1120 in the Blue Pew Bible. Our sermon text this morning is going to focus really on the last paragraph of this reading, verses 18 through 21. But we're going to read from verse 12 to verse 21 of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. And now let's continue to give our attention to God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign, through righteousness leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of our God. Amen. Please be seated. And now let's seek the Lord's illumination together before we unpack his word. Let us pray once more. Holy Spirit of our God, you have breathed out the words of Scripture through the prophet Isaiah, through the Apostle Paul. You have preserved the sacred writings down through all the ages of time. You have provided translators who would render the words of God into the language of our hearts. And so we thank you that we have this extraordinary privilege, this wonderful privilege today to hear your word read to us. We pray that even as we have stood at attention while it was read, so now we would sit with illumination as we unpack it. We pray that you would work a great work in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll start by asking you a question this morning that all of us, due to very recent experience, should be able to answer. When you read a passage like Romans chapter 5, 
verses 12 through 21. When you hear a passage like that read to you from the Bible, do you get excited? Or do your eyes kind of glaze over? And the question is, why or why not? Or when you heard the assurance of pardon this morning that God has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Does that excite you? Does that fill your heart with wonder? Or do you just say, ooh, sounds like theology, boy. These aren't just words, brothers and sisters, that were read to us today. These are testimonies. They are testimonies written by the eyewitnesses of the genius and the goodness of God literally breaking into history to change cosmic destiny. And in changing cosmic destiny, changing your destiny, changing my destiny, they are something so wonderful that the early Christians were willing to lose everything else in order to keep these things that Paul wrote to us of in Romans chapter 5, those very words that we just read. They were worth, they were worth the world to the early believers. Early believers like Paul himself. Think about Paul's own life story. We did a Sunday school class on the life and theology of Paul last year. I know it's a long time, we forget, but remember the basic curve of Paul's life. He was a rising star in Judaism, probably on his way and on the path toward what we today might equate with like a a career in the U.S. Senate. He was a high riser, a high flyer. He was advancing, he says, in Judaism far beyond many of his own age. And yet he ended his life being beheaded on the Appian Way by a Roman centurion, if church tradition is correct. Why? Because of these things. Because Paul found something in Christ. When Christ met him and mugged him on the road to Damascus, Paul met something in the risen Lord Jesus that was worth more than all the riches and all the honor of a career in the Sanhedrin. Paul was captivated by the gospel. Paul was captivated by the overflowing wonder of the grace of God. Even when we say a word like grace, how do you define that word? What does that word mean to you? There's an old acronym. I don't know who first came up with it, but I find it helpful. God's riches at Christ's expense. How many of you have heard that? It's cool. It's fun. It's useful. But don't miss the first two words, God's riches. The riches that belong not to the king of England, not to the President of the United States, not to Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or all the billionaires on the Forbes list, but the riches of God. How rich is God? How rich is the infinite, eternal, omnipotent God? What more? God's riches to you and I at Christ's expense. Another way of defining grace is that it is God giving us not what we deserve, but what Jesus earned. And again, that's not just a cool little contrast, not just a good memory mnemonic, but think about what did Jesus earn? God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Paul says in another letter that God is going to unite all things in him. What has Jesus earned? The universe, everything. All the colors, all the music, all the goodness. Not that you and I can imagine. All the goodness that God can imagine. And so grace is supposed to be captivating. It is supposed to overflow our hearts with wonder. And if we grasp it, it, we really ought to be people who live 
the title of that first hymn that we sung this morning. People who love and sing and wonder. It should be the fuel of our worship and our work and our witness. But how many of us, if we're very honest, struggle to feel the wonder of grace? Do you ever struggle to fear the wonder of grace? You're in the trenches of life. So much else is competing for your attention. Your phone's always buzzing. Maybe your phone's buzzing in your pocket while you're at church. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans in order to take us in deep. Take us in deep to the grace of God, to the wonder of God's grace. And there are many places in Romans, of course, that that plunge us into the pool, throw us under the waves of God's grace, as it were. This is one of those places, Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. And so in one of my last weeks with you from the pulpit, I wanted to study this passage with you this morning. The question I know as you're reading it is like, man, theology, it's so dense. That's true. But the question I want to ask you, is it possible that theology can actually beget joy? What if Paul wrote all this dense theology so that you would have to think, so that you would have to go in, and so that as you go in, you are gripped? What if the theology that is so maybe dense and difficult to focus on is actually the pathway to being captivated afresh by the wonder of God's grace? That's what we're going to see this morning. In just this last paragraph of Romans 5, we're going to see how Paul takes us and leads us through the plan of God's grace, to the promise of God's grace, to the wonder of God's grace. And those three things then form the three pieces of our sermon outline this morning. And we have our fill-in-the-blank kids. If you've got it in front of you there, we're going to start with number one in just a moment as we think about The plan of God's grace. When we say that God made a plan, what do we mean? Well, what Paul says to us here, first and foremost, in these these verses 18 and 19, number one is that in his grace, God built his gospel plan, his plan to rescue humans from the ruin of our sin. God built his gospel plan around a structure of two human teams. Two human teams. You see this in verses 18 through 19. He's talking about these two human teams and how they're different and how they brought about different performance. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So two teams, one act of trespass, one act of righteousness, two human teams. Really, he's summarizing here in verses 18 and 19 what he had said at more length in verses 12 through 17, that God structured the human race around these two human teams. The first team, led by Adam, the first man. And Adam's death and Adam's sin spread to all of his team, to all who were joined to him, all who were joined to him by having a human father. All ordinarily descended human beings from Adam inherit the sin and the death of Adam because they're on his team. But God didn't stop the human story with one team. God started a new, a new team led by the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Adam's performance spread to his team, so Christ's life and righteousness spread to all who are joined to him. This time not by a natural descent, but by a supernatural descent, the rebirth of the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts faith, as it says in verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace through faith reign 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that, that passage that I know was read in Sunday school and also was our assurance of pardon this morning from Colossians 1 talks about then what it means when we say that a person needs to be born again, when they need to be converted. What is Christian conversion? It is a team transfer. God, by His Spirit, works in your heart, changes your heart, draws you, persuades you to faith, and when you believe in Jesus, you are transferred from Adam's team to the team of Jesus. This is the core idea of gospel mechanics. It's how the gospel works. But for many people, of course, it's also one of the most offensive things. Have you ever, have you ever thought, isn't it a little, have, maybe you've heard this or maybe you've thought this, it seems a little unfair that I should be blamed for what Adam did that what some man did so many thousands of years ago should be, I should, I should get the blame for that? Frankly, frankly, pastor, that seems kind of un-American. Well, let me tell you, friends, first of all, God's not that interested in being American. But secondly, let me tell you that this is as American as football or soccer, if you're not a football fan, Ryan. How is it as American as football? I know that some of you today or next week, I don't know the schedule, some of you are going to sit down sometime in the near future to watch a Bengals game. Am I right? <laughs> don't say amen. <laughs> Just say yes. <laughs> okay. When you're watching the Bengals play, and that one player who gets the ball, either through a handoff or who receives that, that pass, they, that one single individual runs across the end zone line, are you going to complain that the whole team gets credit for the touchdown? Are you going to say, that's un-American, that's unfair? Of course not. Or if your football fandom is deficient and you're watching soccer, and that one person kicks the goal, are you going to complain that the whole team gets credit? Of course not. Because even in America, we recognize the reality that teams are operated on the one for all And so it's not un-American, at least not if you think about it in that sense. But even if you do, who cares? God's not an American. God is God. Thank God. But you're also, whenever we, get, whenever we get kind of tied around the axle here, when we get stuck in this quagmire of whether it's fair or not, we're actually missing what Paul is trying to say. Paul is trying to tell us something a lot bigger. He's trying to tell us that God, by organizing the human race into teams, is actually setting up something amazing, something wonderful. And that the point that is most offensive to many people is actually the point that is most wonderful. And look at how he sets it up here in verses 18 and 19. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made sinners righteous. And what he's saying is he's saying that this whole structure of teams, dealing with the human race in teams, organizing humanity into teams, it was a secret setup all along. It was a setup for the gospel, for the good news. How does it work? Number two, we've already hinted at this, kids, but this is the key to, to the setup, is that each team shares the points and the penalties and the spirit of its captain. We've already said this is how it works in sports. In sports, one person scores, the whole team gets a credit. 
In sports, one person commits a foul, the whole team gets the penalty. The decisions especially of the team captains can radically affect the fortunes, good or ill, of the team. Right? You know this. It's the same with the human race. It's the same in the gospel. Adam failed the test. He didn't score the points in Edom. He earned the penalty of God's wrath and sin. And that that penalty poisoned his spirit and it was passed on to us. But Jesus comes along as the captain of the new human team, the new humanity, and he passed the test and he paid the penalty. And now he pours into us his Holy Spirit. You see, the reality is, yes, that team structure allowed for something that will probably forever be a mystery. The entrance of evil into, into a creation ruled by God. So yes, the team structure allowed one captain to plunge us into ruin, and that will probably forever be a mystery. But that same structure also allowed one captain to win the victory once for all. The same structure that had plunged the race into ruin was the same structure that was set up so that one captain, the Lord Jesus Christ, could win the victory once and forever. From the very beginning of God's work, right after the fall, when God comes to them in the garden and says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, he is saying, I'm making you a promise, there will come another team. And this captain will come forth and he will win a victory of such unimaginable goodness that those who come to love this hero will forever be captivated by his wonder. Have you ever wondered why it is that human beings and almost every culture are attracted to these hero stories? How many of you like stories where there's a hero? Where things look really bad, things look awful, and then comes the hero or the heroine sometimes, and, they, and they, they win a tremendous victory, often at great cost to themselves. This idea, C.S. Lewis talks about this, this idea of the dying God who somehow comes back and rescues his followers, it's even spread in the pagan mythologies. And even there's even echoes of it in our more modern contemporary comic book tales, where there's the, the hero, the superhero, who comes and he rescues people who are otherwise hopeless. Have you ever wondered why it is that people are so attracted to the hero story? It's because right after the human race fell into ruin, God promised a hero would come. And even in our unbelief, even as people spread far away and walked far from God, they carried with them the memory that someday a hero would come. It's part of our deepest wiring. The ruin of our race is part of our deepest tragedy, but the promise of a hero, the attraction to the hero story is part of our deepest longing. And so the next time you find yourself smarting at the fact that God deals with you according to as he dealt with Adam, remember that God also deals with you according to as he dealt with Christ. That supposedly most offensive point of the gospel, the two-team structure, is also the point that makes the gospel good news. Aren't you thankful that you don't have to earn your salvation? Because you couldn't, but Jesus could, and Jesus did. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. And you might say, well, hang on, hang on, Pastor, wait, stop. You just said the gospel was good news. You said it was good news from the very beginning. What about this law? 
If it's supposed to be good news, two teams, a hero coming all along, what, why all those laws, hundreds of laws in the Old Testament? The answer isn't hard. Number three, kids, God's law didn't change the plan. God's law was intended, among other things, to drive us to his promises. When Paul says the law came in to increase the trespass, he's not saying it made us sin. He's saying it measures our sin. The law was given to be an amplifier, a mirror, so that people could look at ultimate reality. We're so good at lying to ourselves. Have you ever noticed how good you are at rationalizing your own misbehavior? Yes, I know it's wrong to do this to my sibling, but this time she really deserved it. Yes, I know I shouldn't, I shouldn't fudge the truth, massage the facts, but this time I really had to. This time it was okay. We're so good at lying, even to ourselves, that God gave a law. God gave an honest reflection that will not bend with the whims of an individual or the culture and says, this is truth. This is who you are. That wasn't to change the plan. And ultimately, the goal wasn't to damn us. It was to drive us to the promises so that we would go all the more back to that first promise. I need a hero. I need a savior. The law was meant to drive us to back to the good news. It was meant to make us despair of being on Adam's team and reach out to God in faith to cling to the promise that would join us, even in the Old Testament, to the team of the hero that was to come to the promise of grace. And that's the next thing. We look at this theology, we look at this structural stuff, because it points us and it brings us to the wonder of God's promises. Anthropology, the study of how God created people. Harmatiology, or something like that. The study of sin. <laughs> Lawology, that's not a real word, I just made that up. But the study of God's law. It's all meant to drive us to the promises, the good news. And what is the good news? Well, it's the second half there in verse 20. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but look at this, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Kids, number four on your outlines. Paul is saying that wherever sin can be found, God's grace, get this, superabounds. God's grace superabounds. You, you can't see it in the English translation. In fact, I checked a lot of English translations. None of them really show it. But what Paul is literally saying there, he is saying that where sin increased, grace hyperabounded or superabounded. There's, a, there's, a, there's this Greek prefix that he puts on the word abound. It's the Greek prefix huper, hooper, hyper, super. God's grace superabounded. And if you read that, you should be thinking, I'm hearing the footsteps of the hero. I'm hearing the footsteps of the hero approaching. Because Paul is saying that where selfishness is strongest, where sin is darkest, where the scales were most against us because of our guilt, at that point, Jesus comes, the hero comes, and he doesn't just balance the scales. He doesn't just pour just, just enough grains of righteousness on so that things get even. No, no, no. It's like he tore the top off the sack of righteousness and poured it on the scale, and the scale is overwhelmed. It's not, this is not grains of sand. This is the waves of the sea coming in, the righteousness of God, hyper, super abounding. That's why we sing songs like Joy to the World. Because as far as the curse is found, the promise of the gospel is as far as the curse is found 
is found. God's grace superabounds. Now, what is that going to look like? Paul continues. How can we imagine this? What does it mean to say that, that God's grace superabounds? He says in verse 21, it will be like this. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying, number five, kids, that wherever sin has reigned, the true Lord, Jesus, will restore. And again, the, the, the structure there, the, the original is even more emphatic. He is saying, as sin reigned in death, literally, in the same way, grace also might reign, leading to eternal life. And so he's, he's, he's teaching us here how to imagine this. If you want to really grasp the wonder of God's grace, if you want to sort of really get what it was that captivated early Christians like Paul, you have to do a thought experiment. Use your imagination in a sanctified way. And first, think this. Think of all the places that sin reaches now. Think of everywhere, not only in the outside world, but in your own heart. Think of how far sin spreads. Think of how deep it goes. Think of, think of how it, it just seems to seep like a cockroach into every dark corner of the world. Think of, you got something, you got something in your mind, just the, the permeating power of evil and sin and death. Now imagine that righteousness, goodness, perfection, light, joy, music permeated into all those same places even deeper, even further. Imagine a place, imagine a world, my friends, where every bit of evil was replaced by at least two bits of righteousness. Two bits of goodness. At least where God's grace superabounds over all that evil. And as far as the curse has gone, the grace of God goes even farther. Not just as far, but even further, even deeper, even more. What would a world like that look like? What, is, what will the world look like when the hero reigns in full? It will look like the prophecy of Isaiah that Elder Gieslin read to us this morning. When the hero rules and where the hero rules, the lamb is safe with the lion or the wolf. Can you imagine that? No venison on the menu. Sorry, no veal on the menu. It's a world where the child would be safe playing over the hole of a cobra. It's not just a world where all the bad things come untrue, although much as I love that phrase. It's a world where death and all the bad things are swallowed up in victory and in righteousness. It's not just balancing the scales, it's overwhelming the scales. You might ask, could such a world ever exist? And the good news of the gospel is, it's already begun to exist. It began in the life of Jesus, did it not? Jesus coming into the world, living that perfect life, always doing the right thing, always saying the right thing. His grace superabounding, even in the midst of the darkness. And it continues to spread, even now, even today, into the life of his whole team. You and I, who believe and trust in him, by his spirit working in us. And you might say, I'm not so sure about that second part. Well, you have to make a decision, because Paul says in verse 19... As by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the work of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So you might say, I don't feel like there's much going on. 
even though I'm a Christian. I'm not sure that the life of Jesus really is spreading into the, word, but, into the world, but God's word says it does, and it is. So you have to ask yourself, which is the more reliable, your feelings or God's promises? God promises that that new world, that new life, that restoration of all things is already begun. Christ for us, and now Christ in us. Do you believe that? You might say, okay, I want to believe it. Tell me how to activate it. How can I personally be gripped by this grace today? How can I, how can I, how can I meditate on this so that it really becomes wonderful even to me? That's the last piece of our sermon this morning, the wonder of grace. And there are three steps to really bringing this home to your heart. Those three steps are examine, imagine, and believe. Number six, kids, imagine. What we have to do is we have to imagine for ourselves, this is more of an individual exercise, where has sin gone deepest in me? This is a question that has a different answer perhaps for each of us, but you have to ask yourself, where has sin sunk, sunk the deepest into my own soul? Maybe, maybe nobody else knows. Maybe the pastors don't know, the elders don't know. Maybe my family doesn't know, but I know. Where are the deepest wounds of sin? Where, is, where does it have a strongest grip over my attitudes, my words, my affections? Where has it perhaps even warped my whole grid in how I perceive certain things? Where does it hold on the tightest to me? Where does it make me most afraid? Where does it most powerfully hijack even my good desires to justify wrong behavior? Where does it most powerfully hijack my deepest fears to make me rationalize not doing the right thing? Where are the deepest cracks? Where are the darkest holes in my soul? Where has sin gone deepest? Ask yourself, the beginning of verse 20, where has sin increased in me the most? You have something in mind? And now, imagine the gospel. Imagine the power. Number seven, what if those same places, those exact spots, were overflowed no longer with sin, but with righteousness. What if those places were overflowing with righteousness instead? This is what he's saying. This is why this is such a wonderful passage. Where sin increased, grace superabounded. So imagine those same places that you just identified, no longer festering with sin, but now spurting forth, brimming with righteousness, with the goodness of God. The darkest cracks now shining as the brightest candles and beacons of the goodness of Jesus. I think about it in my own life as I thought about it this week and was preparing to preach. What if some of the things that I've struggled with, struggles with assurance over decades, what if those were replaced all at once? Someday they will be. But, but replaced not just with an equivalent amount of certainty, but twice as much certainty. What if my fear of failure... What if my fear of failure were expelled with a double portion of confidence in the love of God and in his care for me? This might even be the way that we look so different and yet so glorious in heaven because each of us have unique sin wounds, sin struggles. But as God's grace superabounds and we are transformed in those exact same spots, we will be together united in Christ and yet sparkling in different ways perhaps. Your radiance will be the radiance of Christ, but it might not be the same as your radiance. 
because your sin struggles were different, God's grace superabounding in those places will make you both glorious, but glorious in different ways. That's somewhat speculative in terms of what it may look like. But what we're saying is true. That where sin increases, grace abounds. This is not just a cosmic promise. This is a personal promise to you and to me. And it's not really just a what if, it's a when. We see it even in the scriptures, if you're reading carefully. What was the Apostle Peter, what was one of his greatest struggles? He was afraid. He said he wouldn't deny Jesus, and what happened? When push came to shove, he denied him one, two, three times. And yet after the Lord was risen and after the Spirit filled Peter, he became one of the boldest of men, one of the bravest of Christian evangelists. And again, church tradition says that where he ended his life was crucified upside down because he would not deny the Lord. Where sin increased, grace abounded. Where cowardice once lurked, confidence burst forth like a lion. And I want you all, each of you, to think of your own most besetting sin and imagine what you will be like someday when God expels and uproots that besetting sin with a double portion of the opposite fruit of the Spirit. Won't that be glorious? Isn't that wonderful? How can we start that process even now? This is number eight, kids. We start that process now by bringing every hole in your soul to the holes in Jesus' hands. The end of the passage leaves no doubt as to how all this happens. It doesn't happen through moral efforts of our own. It doesn't happen through really telling ourselves, this is the day to pull myself up by my bootstraps. No. All of this comes only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is how the chapter ends. And so if you want this process to begin in you and you want it to keep going in you, what do you do? You need to bring every hole in your soul to the Lord Jesus. You take every hole in your soul and you put it into the holes in his hands. You say to the Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. This particular struggle that I'm really wrestling with, the most besetting part of my darkness, Lord, into your hands I commit it. Please make your grace overabound on this very point. Please let it be true what it says in Psalm 23, that you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. May this hole in my soul now henceforth be a cup through which and from which your grace can overflow. Because your grace doesn't just measure and balance the scales. It is not just grains to, to make the tables even. It is a wave to superabound where sin increases. Say something like that to the Lord Jesus and see what he will do. The big promise, the thing that makes the gospel so wonderful, the thing that should overflow our own hearts with wonder this morning, number nine, is that the holes in the hands of Christ hold not just a, a thimble of grace. The holes in Christ's hands hold an ocean of grace overflowing all our sins with life and full enough to make us whole. Do you believe that? God promised. Amen. Let us pray. 
Our God, we confess to you that so often it is true that we can read a passage even like Romans 5 and not be as captivated as we ought. We pray that that would not be true anymore. That from the theology of this passage, we would be led to the promise of grace. And through really meditating on that promise that where sin increases, grace superabounds, our hearts would overflow with wonder. And they wouldn't just overflow with wonder and do nothing else, but they would overflow with wonder that would draw us all the closer to Christ Jesus in worship, all the closer to you, our God, in, in work, and all the more courageous and happy and joyful to share this wonderful, overflowing grace with a dying world in our witness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.